Hi, this is Sedge Thompson. Welcome to this special audio highlights podcast from West Coast Live. For more information about our shows and other guests and podcasts, wcl.org. My next guest on West Coast Live has been a music writer, music columnist, disc jockey, uh, been portrayed in Cameron Crowe's film Almost Famous in the year 2000. Uh, he's written a number of books of his uh, memoirs of uh, covering the rock and roll scene, including Not Fade Away and a biography of Graham Parsons called Hickory Wind. His new book is called Becoming Almost Famous, My Back Pages in Music, Writing, and Life. Will you please welcome Ben Fong Torres to West Coast Live. I love I love little details that come up in in books such as these that where people write about the author in the in the foreword, <laughs> where where you at uh, one time on a on a retreat in Ventana, uh, showed up in a pair of cleaver pants. Mm, remember those? I remember those. I don't know how many of you remember cleaver pants where they showed off the full male anatomy, um, <laughs> uh, with with garbed in fabric, but but. But you, you sewed a pair for yourself to, to I, wear. I, I, am I on the Howard Stern show? <laughs> no, no. Did I get lost again? No, 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 no. There no, is no, no delay on this show. No, no there's <laughs> no delay. Yeah. You can't say special words just for the serious satellite people, can you? <laughs> no. No. So Eldritch Cleaver became, after his uh, activism days uh, were waning, uh, a fashion designer. And he came up with the cleavers, a pair of pants uh, which have the male anatomy. Uh, featured uh, in much the way a brassiere for women, that kind of thing, as part of your fashion, part of your your, your dress, and so because he, he was he was photographed as as I recall yeah. in, uh, somewhere in the was it the seventies eighties yeah, wearing this in the seventies he was in the mid uh, <laughs> mid seventies and so we were a gathering in Ventana for one of our Rolling Stone gatherings and so I just thought uh, you know I would. Uh <coughs> make my own pair of cleavers <laughs> with... So as not to pay the high fashion price. That's right. I, I couldn't afford, you know, we were... It's like a pattern you got at the sewing shop, right? right? right. <laughs> Us rock journalists couldn't afford <laughs> to go down to Fifth Avenue to get our cleavers right. so, or to send away for them. So, yeah, I, I made my own pair and, and, and modeled them uh, at the uh, meeting. Yeah. It made, ca caused quite a stir. Yeah. Yes. And, and before that, were you viewed as kind of a mild-mannered reporter? Not around the office, no, 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 they, they knew me pretty well. Yeah. That's the one thing about Almost Famous is that I think a lot of my uh, family and friends felt like uh, I was a good device for the movie, for the storyline, but that it didn't really exactly capture me. But then I wasn't there to be captured. It was a story about somebody else and his uh, rock fantasies uh, coming true. Uh, you're referring to Cameron Crowe, the director? The Cameron Crowe character, the young man, yeah. Uh, so in this, uh, in this book, this is a collection of uh, of essays uh, that you've written, articles, interviews with various musicians over time, and there's one in there in which you uh, you talk about Emmy Emmy Lou Harris, and that there was a a paragraph out of all the many favorable paragraphs that 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 had offended her, and thus she wasn't available to you as a source. Yet you ran the piece still with that paragraph in it. I never learned, do I? <laughs> yes. I felt I thought that'd be uh, disingenuous of me to then edit it out to make her happier. The damage has been done, obviously. Uh, what it was was that uh, at Rolling Stone, uh, we tended to kind of cross over the borders of being a journalist or a critic. We were expected to offer our own opinions here and there about artists we were covering. So I, I did, to my chagrin, because I did use one paragraph out of a 
a, a pretty nice, positive piece about her, a profile of Emmy Lou, who I just still adore in terms of her music, her voice, everything, her choices in life, everything about her uh, amazes me. But I did have this one paragraph where I just said, you know, this one particular track or two didn't really knock me out. And that's all it takes. And that's how it was for many artists covered by Rolling Stone. You could do a fantastic cover story and praise them to the heavens, but there's one little sentence that describes them in a way they don't want to be described, or you criticize something they said in concert, or one note of a song, and that's it. They hate you. <laughs> and that's what happened with me and Emmylou. Yeah. Did it happen with anyone else? Yeah, there was. <laughs> well, now that I think about it, this is such a negative interview. Um, <laughs> I should be doing. No, I'm, I'm just trying to see if you had any positive experiences out of it. I mean, like you know, the 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 uh, the reconciliation. Oh, I I wish. Yeah, with uh, a guy named Dobie Gray. Give me the beat, boy, free my soul. I just want to get lost in that rock and roll. And uh, I remember I, I did a nice story on him. I thought, uh, but I saw him at the boarding house. I remember that it was kind of a flat show that I happened to see, and I mentioned that. And he wrote a letter saying, boy, you know, you just about destroyed my career, and boy, my, my record sales are going to suffer now. And I don't think we had that much power at Rolling Stone, but he felt so, and he was hurt by that. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, uh, how would somebody write a review of you for your karaoke singing? <laughs> Flat. No. <laughs> uh, I, I, I don't know. I, I do, I, I tend to hide behind other people's voices in my singing. And so it's more like, Oh, is that was that a good Dean Martin, or is this a, a a worthy Dylan, or how how's his Elvis stack up to the other Chinese Elvis impersonators of the world? <laughs> <laughs> it's got to be taken in context, but people seem to enjoy it. Your uh, your career is has more from Rolling Stone. You also part of the book is the account of how you came to work for other magazines, and uh, then you uh, at at some point became a record producer yourself. Well, yes, in one instance, there was this this lovely man named Larry Ching who was back in the 40s and early 50s at a Chinatown area nightclub called Forbidden City back when there were, it was like an Asian version of the Cotton Club in a way because most of the customers were non-Chinese, they were white. And so it was wartime and they were entertainers who happened to be Asian American but wanted to be mainstream entertainers. Larry Ching was a great crooner out of Hawaii. So he was dubbed by the promoter-minded uh, promoter of the club as the Chinese Sinatra. There was also a Chinese Sophie Tucker. There was a Chinese Sedge Thompson, you know, the, <laughs> the MC of the show. And so Larry was a beautiful singer, and I heard him at about age 77 because Arthur Dong made a documentary of Forbidden City uh, called Forbidden City USA. And so I met Larry at that time, and I, just something about him made me think, we ought to capture this guy on tape, wax, whatever. And so a few years later, I had that chance and did it and put out his first CD ever. And at age 82, he put out his first recording. It was a lovely moment for him. We had a day for him, a CD party, just like the rock stars do at uh, a museum in Chinatown, the CHSA. And the mayor, Mayor Brown, Willie Brown, proclaimed it Larry Ching Day, his uh, uh, surviving Fellow performers from Forbidden City nightclub showed up and danced the hula behind him and sang along with him. I got the chance to do a duet with him. Um, it was a beautiful day, and uh, the album had been out for about three weeks by that time and got into the top 200 of Amazon.com, and he knew about that, and he knew it had pretty much broken even, and a week later he passed away. And it was such a lovely thing for the family to be able to say, 
But wow, the way he went out, he got himself a hit record. <laughs> he did what we all hoped he would do. And so it's, it's a, that was a proud moment. That's my only CD production, but that's all I need. The, the rock and roll phrase, you're, you're only as big as your latest hit. Uh, do you know the genesis of that, by any chance? That's a Barry Bonds phrase, I think. Is it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <It's the or laughs> That's, you know, uh, yeah. Uh, you, you have to succeed and you have to keep on succeeding. That's yeah. basically it, you know. And, and, and you deride people for, for being a one-hit wonder. My God, you had a hit. You know, yeah. you ought to be happy and proud of that. You had that moment in life. You succeeded where millions of others dreamt of succeeding and never did. So, but the pressure is always on in this business to continue to top yourself and top yourself. Yeah. Uh, speaking of this business, I mean, there's been radical change in, in broadcasting. Uh, there are other forms have shown up. People are listening to podcasts now. Uh, there's been consolidation of radio stations where now one company owns you know, 15 radio stations in the in in, a, in one city, uh, and it's changed. Uh, I mean, where do you where do you find yourself listening now? Where do you where do you find to look for the the zeitgeist? I do pretty much what I think more and more people are doing, and that is going for the alternatives. Ever since I started writing the radio column again in the Chronicle in the Sunday Pink section, uh, the overriding theme, the emails, uh, the, the 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 feeling of the masses is that they don't like what they're hearing on commercial terrestrial radio anymore. And it's been the case really for more than 10, 15 years. This consolidation's been going on, but depersonalityization of radio, that was a great word, huh? Yeah. I was hoping to work in quadrennial, but I haven't done that yet. <laughs> but we'll, we'll get to it. You have four years to do that. Oh, okay, yeah. my, my next appearance. Your next book, your sequel to The Rice Room. Yeah. But that's been going on for a long time, and so people are now, because they're becoming more technically proficient, able to use uh, an mp3 player and program their own music and have whenever they want to, download podcasts from shows like yours and others online, and again, have it when they want to. It's like TiVoing radio. And then there's internet radio. Some people thought, well, that means I have to sit at my computer to listen to this radio station on AOL or Yahoo or whatever. Not anymore with wireless networking and your home entertainment system being able to receive whatever you get from your computer. And so it's a lot more freeing. And then there's the big satellite radio beast. It's still in its infancy. It still has a total subscription of only about uh, 10, 11 million at this point, but it's growing. People are willing to pay 12 bucks a month for that freedom from commercials. And even the music, the, the channels that are on there, 60s Channel, Bluesville, The Loft, uh, Serious Disorder, uh, the talk shows are different from what you would hear on commercial radio. Not only are there no commercials, but in each of the music areas, it's much deeper and full of surprises and rarities and flip sides from the old singles days uh, than you would ever hear on regular radio. So radio has a tremendous challenge. They're fighting back with AM stereo, now high-definition radio. But I think it's a little too late, a little too, uh, too expensive. Like that. How, much, how much do you think government, uh, government regulation has, has made terrestrial broadcasting timid and, and uh, unwilling to take risks, as, as, uh, you know, which has also allowed consolidation of of markets where there's one corporate manager for many voices. Well, yeah, that's a major factor because it was the government that allowed the deregulation so that now one Texas company can own 1,200 stations around the country. And then, of course, that led to the uh, economy and the budgeting of radio stations to the point where you have one manager dealing with 
a dozen stations. How can one person do that? Or you have disc jockeys now hired to do shows for six different markets. And it's not, we're not talking about big stars doing syndicated shows like a, like a Howard Stern, but rather just a low-paid piece of talent who sits in Denver and has to pretend that he's also serving Chicago and Austin and San Francisco and Portland for little pay, you know? So it's just a generic DJ, but these stations save that money by just running this show out of Colorado. There's a, uh, you know, at the, at the risk of sounding uh, also perhaps like, a, like an old-timer, I, I remember hearing a, uh, a, a show, I think it was a KFOG may have run it sometime in the mid-70s, and it was a reminiscence, or maybe K-San ran it, if K-San was still around, then I've lost track of the dates of this, but it was a reminiscence of Bay Area Radio in the 60s and the 70s, and it was like a multi-hour marathon. And one of the statistics I remember from that, we were talking about KFRC, which is one of the great powerhouse rock and roll stations here in the Bay Area, and somebody said there were, at one time, 40% of all Bay Area radio listeners were listening to that one station yeah. in morning drive time. Mm -hmm. And there was sort of a, in a way, it was kind of like Herb Cain's column. Everyone, you know, kind of read it. It was a, it was a communal place. People, yeah. people went. Right. And now we have so many voices and, and such fragmentation, too, that it's changed the way pop culture, I think, yes. evolves. But we're talking about the days now. Y you are sounding old, almost as <laughs> old as I am. Uh, I, I know there's a difference between us, but... Uh, just, just trying to keep it negative here. You know? <laughs> But in the 50s and early 60s, even into the mid 60s, I think, there were only like about eight stations on AM that the entire Bay Area tuned into. And so if you wanted news, you went here, and you want the uh, uh, Giants games, you went here. You want top 40, you go here. You want beautiful music, you go to 960. You know, and you knew exactly where you were going. And back in the old days, remember now, radios came with the stations already pre-printed on your buttons. So that's how limited it was back then. There was no FM to speak of. And so, yes, Don Sherwood commanded more than 40% of the audience at certain times when he had the morning show. And when KFRC was the top 40 powerhouse, it had about a 20 share, I think, 20%. But that's ridiculous, you know, with uh, so many stations in the Bay Area. Yeah. Also, uh, I think it explained why certain people succeeded in, in television also in the early days. I was showing one of those uh, DVDs of the Ed Sullivan show from... 1964 in February when the Beatles first made their appearances to some 11 year olds the other night. And the DVD included the commercials from the time for like Anison and Pillsbury. And, and, uh, and then you watch Ed Sullivan, who was clearly a cranky guy. Uh, and I made you promise you weren't gonna, oh hi, you know, welcome back. Now I told you kids, settle down. And, and, the, and the 11 year old kids were, uh, were just kind of, Appalled, they said, people watched this? Yeah, that's right. And then they looked at the Beatles' haircuts, and they said, oh, look at that funny hair they had. <laughs> <laughs> that's, I, they said, it's much better not to look at them. Right. My next book is about the doors, and they tell the story about the time that uh, they went on the show, big time, light my fire. The producer came backstage and said, now, guys, you know, we can't have you saying, girl, we couldn't get much higher. That's a, we just can't have that on network TV. So they said, oh, okay, we'll come up with something else. And then Jim Morrison went on and, of course, sang that line exactly that way. Uh, but years before, he also asked the Rolling Stones not to do let's spend the night together. And so Mick was a good boy, and he sang let's spend some time together. And so, yeah, they went through all of that on TV. But Ed Sullivan was the only, well, he was the powerhouse on Sunday nights. All of America tuned in, basically. So, so, so who's the powerhouse now? What, what's the, where's the center? Is there a center that you know, or is oh, it just? Sure. Uh -huh. Oh yeah, American Idol. 
for better or worse, that's the powerhouse now. People gather, it's a variety show, and a star is born. Would you, would you go on and be a contestant yourself? Oh, no, 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 no. Uh, un unless I could get a good voting constituency, people with a lot of speed dial telephones available. Did, no. did, you, did you catch that, uh, that film that was a parody? Of, uh, yes. sort of American Dream. American Dream yeah. with uh, Hugh Grant. Right. It was, it was a nice effort, and Hugh Grant was a perfect Simon Cowell. <laughs> and, uh, but, you know, it was cartoonish. It was obviously just a, uh, a quick satire of uh, two things, of American Idol and uh, President Bush. Yeah. And, it, well, yeah, you got a few laughs out of it. I enjoyed it. What, what about also there's been a change in, in the publication business, in the magazine world, too, from when you were writing in, in Rolling Stone. When you, when you pick up Rolling Stone, does it look... I, I don't know, uh, how does it look to you after all these years? Considering it's been almost 40 years since Jan created this newspaper in the south of Market here in San Francisco, it is still Rolling Stone. That's pretty amazing. E even his later acquisitions like Us Weekly have gone through tumultuous changes and doesn't look like what it was before, but Rolling Stone still finds room for the larger pieces, the serious pieces. Uh, it, it still gives writers a lot of latitude for their attitudes. Um, the covers, you know, Jan still has this nostalgic streak in him that will never diminish, so he still finds time to uh, praise the 60s heroes of his childhood. And so, yeah, Rolling Stone is still there, amazingly enough, given what magazines have gone through, all of the competition in magazines to Rolling Stone directly, but also in all of the different other forms of media that there are now that take away young readers' attention. Newspapers are suffering the same way, of course, but all of mainstream media, radio, television, film, uh, magazines, and newspapers are suffering because kids now can go elsewhere. You, as a, as a kid, wanted to be a, a DJ and uh, from very early on. Uh, would you, uh, in this climate, what would your job want to be? What would you, what would you want to do? You know, I, I after KSAN, I was uh, a weekend disc jockey there while at Rolling Stone for about 10 years. I just couldn't find a station I would want to be on, and because my main job was writing for magazines and newspapers, I never went out and sought a radio job, although I do, a, I do have a chapter there where for my GQ column I had a, ch had a chance to sit in a top KFRC, a top 40 station, and be a top 40 DJ for an hour. And uh, so that was fun to do, but I can't imagine having to be restricted to a format and to some scared program director who's only studying her or his rating books every three months to just to determine the direction of the station and which DJs to hire and fire. I wouldn't want to do that as, as a career. So it's been fun to just dip in on occasion, do it in free form still. Well, and if you want to dip into the, uh, the 70s and the, the 80s and into the 90s and spend some time with uh, Ben Fong Torres and uh, Emmy Lou Harris, Steve Martin, Michael Nesmith, George Harrison, uh, and uh, Larry Ching, the, the great uh, man that he, uh, who's uh, CDL produced, uh, Dusty Springfield and others. Uh, you'll enjoy uh, Becoming Almost Famous, My Back Pages in Music, Writing, and Life by Ben Fong Torres. <laughs> Thanks so much for being here. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you. Pleasure. This is Edge Thompson. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Try out others from West Coast Live right here, and we look forward to having you in one of our audiences one day. For more information, wcl.org.